Well, take your Bibles, open with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We begin this morning a four-part series through the four themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. I am going to be preaching all of those themes from one chapter. We will spend this week and the next three weeks in Luke chapter 1. And so come every week ready to receive what the Lord has for us from those chapters. And by the way, if you have been giving out these Advent cards and you're planning on starting in the morning with your Advent reading, which I hope you are, the only reason we put this together, the primary reason I should say, is that you might take this and as a family or as an individual just gather together and just read every day a little bit about the story of Christmas. If you do that this week, your reading will be starting on Tuesday from Luke chapter 1. And you'll read that entire chapter coming next week. I haven't heard that. By the way, let me just give a little testimony here. I've been pleading with you to pass these out, and we have more at the end of the service today. But I had to go to the funeral home for a viewing on Monday evening. I was introduced to someone, and I was introduced as the pastor of Prince Avenue. And she said to me, I don't go to your church, but I work at the surgery center at Piedmont Hospital. She says, I was standing in the hallway in the hospital. Someone walked past me and handed me one of these. And uh, she said, I have taken it. I've never seen anything like this that gives me reading for every day. I put it on the bulletin board in my office and plan to read every day leading up to Christmas. And praise the Lord. Amen. So whoever did that, good job. Well done. Luke chapter 1. You know, if you're reading through Scripture from front to back, you will come to a moment about two-thirds of the way through the Bible where you will transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In my Bible, that transition takes place at about page 896, where the Old Testament ends. And then you turn over, and just a couple of pages later, on 899, is the New Testament. In most of our Bibles, that transition is marked by a little page that looks something like this, that lets you know you're entering into the New Testament. There is one little page right here that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. Now, I have to tell you, I'm really thankful that that transition happens so quickly. Because if you had started in the book of Genesis, you would have found very quickly a, a story that God was accomplishing throughout Scripture. And you would see some promises that were made in Genesis chapter 3. And then you would go on to see in Genesis chapter 12 and throughout every part of the Bible, more promises, more promises, more promises. So you come to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi 4 where you see promise after promise after promise. I mean, Malachi 4 begins by saying, behold, a day is coming. And then it tells us about a son of righteousness who is going to come. And then it tells us about someone who is going to come like Elijah before the son of righteousness. And after having read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of promises made, you just can't wait to turn the page and get to all the promises that were kept. That's a great way to think about the Bible. Promises made in the Old Testament, promises kept in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you were willing to take more than about two or three seconds, as a matter of fact, maybe if you said, I'm willing to take six or seven seconds to wait and see how the story unfolds, you would end Malachi 4 with that promise that a son of righteousness is going to come with healing in his wings. And then if you were to take a couple of seconds and turn to Luke 1, then you would find in verse 78, the tender mercy of our God is coming whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. 
In about seven or eight seconds, you can move from all the promises made to all the promises being kept. Now, one of the things we often neglect to remember is that this page right here represents 400 years. Now, I love to live on this side of the cross. I'm so thankful that we get to look back on the first coming of Jesus Christ. And yes, we're looking forward to a second coming. That's why we celebrate the Advent season. But what a joy it is for us to be able to see the promises made and in just a few seconds see the promises kept. But I want you to imagine 400 years. And it wasn't just 400 years. It was 400 silent years. 400 years between the promises that were made in Malachi 4 until the promises that were kept in Luke chapter 1. 400 years in which God did not give another reminder, in which God did not give another promise, 400 years of waiting. Now just to put that into perspective, the United States of America is 242 years old. We're talking 12 generations of those who had believed that the promises that God had made were going to be kept, 12 generations waiting. What that means is this, is that one father sits down with his children and says, children, God has made a promise that one day a Messiah was going to come. And then that child tells his children, listen, God has made a promise that someday a Messiah is going to come. And that child tells his children and his children and his children and his children and his children, 12 generations having heard the story, holding on to the promises. And after 12 generations, there's absolute silence from heaven. Now, waiting on God is hard. Can anyone say that that's true? I don't know of anything more difficult than waiting on God. And, and I think if we believe that God is going to do something for us, waiting on God for four days is really hard. Waiting on God for four months is even harder. Waiting on God for four years is just, there's no way, right? 400 years of waiting. We turn to the New Testament and all of a sudden, God breaks his silence with the greatest word that he's ever spoken. He breaks his silence with the word of God incarnate. He breaks the silence with the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. You have to imagine that after 400 years of waiting, with the discouragement, an air of hopelessness, a sense that maybe God will not fulfill his promise, is settling upon the people that are waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. And yet all of a sudden, in a moment, God breaks open the heavens and he speaks louder than he's ever spoken before in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And with him came an unshakable hope, pictured for us beautifully in Luke chapter 1. You see, when you turn to Luke chapter 1, you don't begin with the story of Jesus. You begin with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. And this story is bigger than itself. It's not simply the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and what is happening in their life. It is painting a bigger picture for us. It is painting a picture of what is happening in the nation. It is happening among God's people and what is about to happen in the coming of Jesus Christ. And what we see in Luke chapter 1 is an incredible reminder of the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to give you three reminders about the hope we have in Jesus Christ from Luke 1. The first reminder is this. I encourage you to write these down. There are times 
when everything seems hopeless. There are times when everything seems hopeless. It starts in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Let's pause right there. It paints for us a picture of a couple who, we could just say, come from good stock. They come from a a strong family line. Both of them come from a long line of faithfulness that can be traced way back. And a line of faithful generations who have held on to the hope of the promise that God made that someday a Messiah would going to come. And Zechariah falling in line with his family tradition has become a priest. It says there was a priest by the name of Zechariah. And so it was his duty to lead the people in worship, to go into the temple and to offer prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the people. And here is a picture of a righteous couple. And all of the things that Luke writes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are trying to build the case of what a great couple this is. Not only do they come from a good line, not only is he a priest, but in verse 6 it says they were righteous before God. They trusted God. You say, how do you become righteous before God? By faith in the promises of God. They believed that a Messiah was going to come. The same way that we're made righteous today, believing that a Messiah has come and placing our faith in him. And it says they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. It's upholding to us a faithful, godly couple who walked with Jesus. And all of a sudden, the entire kind of tone of the text changes in verse 7. Look, but... They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's hard to imagine, maybe to many of us, the weight of that statement, a godly, faithful couple walking with Jesus, doing the right things, in ministry, involved, active. But Elizabeth was barren. They had no child and she was advanced in years. I'll never forget when Andrew and I first got married, my first... um, full-time pastoral position was as a teaching pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we ended up in a very, very young church. And I had just spent the previous three years in seminary as a pastoral assistant in a very old, traditional First Baptist church. And I loved it. It is in that place uh, where I fell in love with the local church. It's that place in which I fell in love with the people of God. The multi-generational aspect was just incredible. I loved that church. But we had a massive switch to this church filled with young couples. And it didn't take very long for me to discover something that I had never thought about before, I had never spent any time thinking about, nor did I ever realize was a problem when one after one after one couples came to us and told us about their struggles with infertility. And it seems to always work the same way. One couple will say, here's an issue we're struggling with. And then all of a sudden another couple will say, well, I, we have the same thing. And another couple and another couple. And all of a sudden you realize this is no small issue. This is a pretty prevalent issue among a lot of people. And in a church this size, there's no question. There are all kinds of people struggling. Now, I remember as couples would come to me and talk. And as we begin to talk as a staff, how do we encourage these couples? Just the reality of all of the weight And the pressure and the pain and the frustration and the anxiety, oftentimes the guilt, the sense that maybe it's something that we've done wrong, all of that is heaped upon a person who's struggling with this issue of infertility. Now, I would never for a moment make light 
to anyone in this congregation or anyone in the 21st century that is dealing with this struggle. But it's even harder for us to understand the shame and disgrace that came upon someone in the first century who had this trouble. Because in that moment, it was not simply to most people a a sign of maybe something physically is wrong or maybe if God just doesn't want you to have a child or maybe he wants you to adopt or foster, whatever else. To most people, it was a sign that God was against you. That you had done something wrong and it did come with all kinds of shame and all kinds of disgrace. So Elizabeth was living with the weight and the shame and the disgrace of this issue. You can see this all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, she's just another one of the long line of women who struggled with this and felt the shame and despair of this. Remember Sarah, who was unable to have a child and devised a really terrible plan for her servant Hagar to try to continue the lineage by giving her servant to her husband and the conflict and the pain that that caused. You think about Hannah, who is found weeping on the ground, begging God for a child, weeping to such a degree that when Eli the priest saw her, he assumed she was a drunk woman and approached her and got on to her for drinking so early in the morning. She wasn't drunk. She was just weeping before God because of the overwhelming sense of shame and disgrace because she was unable to have a child. I mean, look at what it says in verse 25. It says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. So among the people, there was this weight of reproach and shame and guilt among everyone. Even a more telling statement is in verse 36 of chapter 1. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, listen, with her who was called barren. Now, it tells us she was barren, Here it says that she was the one who was called barren. In other words, hey, you you know Elizabeth? I don't don't think I I know who she is. You you know her husband is the priest and she's the barren one. Oh, yeah, Elizabeth. The way she was known, her identity was that she was the barren one, the barren wife of the priest, the weight, the pressure that was upon her. And because she was advanced in years... She probably lived with this shame and disgrace for 30, 35, potentially 40 years. Certainly she was married at a young age. She was at this time probably in her mid, late 50s, could have been older than that. So for 10 years and 20 years and 30 years and 40 years, it finally had come to the place where it settled in. This just wasn't going to happen with her. But even though that realization might have come into her mind, the hopelessness was still real in her heart. She lived for years with this cloud of hopelessness. You see, Luke 1, as I told you, is not simply about Elizabeth. It's not simply about Zechariah. She is a picture of the hopelessness that was beginning to settle in upon the people of God as they waited and waited and waited and waited for God to speak. Those who waited and hoped and prayed and taught their children and actually believed that someday a Messiah was going to come. And after 400 years of waiting and promising and believing and hoping and God says nothing, it is easy to get cynical and angry, to lose faith and come to the place where no one else's words matter. Because you just start to wonder whether God is ever going to come through. Now listen. One of the things I'm so thankful for about this text of Scripture is I'm so thankful for the statements about the character 
of Zechariah and Elizabeth in verses 5 and 6 because it's a reminder that even good and godly and faithful people come to moments in their life in which everything seems hopeless. Can we just get real for a moment and acknowledge that hopelessness is a battle that we have to fight? That every one of us have moments in our life in which it seems that God has forgotten us, that God has neglected us. And I know this is not sounding like a very encouraging Christmas message, but it'll turn the corner in a minute. Let's just first acknowledge that every one of us fight the battle of hopelessness. This is the great tool of the enemy to whisper in our ear, God has forgotten you. He is not there. He will not keep his promise. And Elizabeth is a picture of someone who waited and believed and believed and believed and did not hear anything from God. And the truth is, even among the good, faithful, godly people, there is a battle that we must fight against hopelessness. Now, let me, let me be clear on this. Some of you are hopeless for a good reason. You're hopeless because you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted Christ as the payment for your sins, if you are not, as we read in 1 Peter 1, living with the living hope that God has given you, that is reserved for you in heaven, and undefiled and cannot fade away, then you should be hopeless. There is no hope for someone outside of Christ. But even if you know Christ, there is an abiding, lasting hope for you. But we battle hopelessness. So it is that there are times in our life when everything seems hopeless. But look at how the story folds on. It reminds us not only are there times in which everything seems hopeless, but the second reminder is this. Even when everything seems hopeless, listen, God is still at work. Write that down. Even when everything seems hopeless, God is still at work. Verse 8 says, now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. Now, let me, I'm going to tell the rest, but let me just stop right there. I love the fact that in the midst of all of their pain and all of their heartache and all of the shame they're experiencing from everyone else, they're still faithfully serving the Lord. He's still serving, they're still active, they're still walking with Jesus. How many people have you known that have found themselves faithful, but then disappointed in some way with God, and they have wandered away from the faith, they have wandered away from church, they have wandered away from the people of God? Many of you right now could tell someone right now who you knew is sitting at home because at some point they got disappointed with God and lost hope. You know them. And here is a, a couple who are just holding on to the belief that God is still good, and he's still right. And there's still a reason to be hopeful. He's serving as a priest before God. And it says, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So there was a lot of priests. And once a year, one of the priests was chosen to go in and to burn incense. This was literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And the way that it was chosen was by the casting of lots. And so all of a sudden, the lots were cast. And it was, it was Zechariah's turn. His moment that he'd been waiting for, the moment that every priest is waiting for, that maybe sometime during their lifetime they'll get the opportunity to be the one who gets to go into the temple and burn the incense while everyone else is waiting outside. And you say, well, isn't that an amazing coincidence right here that it's, it's Zachariah's time? And then we're reminded of Proverbs 16, which says the lot is cast, but every decision is from the Lord. And you realize that there is no such thing as coincidence or luck in the kingdom of God. There is a sovereign God who is ruling and reigning over all things. Amen. 
It is no coincidence that when Hannah was weeping on the floor, Eli was there and saw her. It is no coincidence that when Jesus wanted to feed the 5,000, Andrew noticed a boy with some fish and some bread. It is no coincidence that at the moment Zachariah went into the temple all alone, that meeting him in that place was an angel from the Lord. See, Zachariah thought he went in to meet the Lord. What he did not realize is that the Lord was waiting to meet him. Look what it says Verse 10, the the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. I think the one thing we begin to see in this story and the way in which hope works is that a fresh hope always emerges in our heart from the foundation of confidence we have in God. Zechariah had not lost confidence in God. He was still serving the Lord. He was still faithful in the things of the Lord. And because of his confidence in God, he was ready at the moment in which God was going to meet him and hope began to arise out of his confidence in God. Listen, the source of every bit of hope is your absolute confidence in God. When hope begins to diminish, what's really diminishing is not hope. What's diminishing is your confidence in God, your belief that what God says is true and what he does is right and what he does is best, that God is still working even though you don't think he's working. Listen, for 400 years in which it appeared that God was not doing anything, God was active and God is working. And let me tell you something, in the four hours, in the four months, in the four years that you've been waiting, I assure you there is a God who is still working. He's, he's still working. I love that Romans eight twenty eight that God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But one of the things I love about that text is the simple statement that God is working. <laughs> Not that he's just working all things together, but that he's actually working. God is always working. There is never a moment in which God is not working for his children, when he is orchestrating things for his children. And our hope flows out of the confidence that even if you don't feel like you've heard from him lately, or your prayers are not being answered, there is a God who is working. In ways you cannot see, in ways you could never possibly understand, there is a God who is working. This Monday morning, I got up to read my Bible, and something, I don't know what it was, reminded me of the end of Psalm 23. And so I I turned back to Psalm 23, and I was reminded of that last little statement. Listen to this. Surely, goodness and mercy, a, a better translation is for mercy is loving kindness. That really is the word there. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Now, I love this because he just began to talk about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And so here is David who has been walking through the valley of the shadow of death that comes with a statement of confidence. Listen, I may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but surely, certainly, without question, I am confident God's goodness and God's loving kindness are following me every single day of my life. I just want to know if you're living with that kind of confidence. The Puritans used to call it the two great hounds of heaven, goodness and loving kindness after you every day of your life. 
Are you believing that this morning? Are you living like the goodness of God is pursuing you every day? That his loving kindness is after you every day? Has the enemy stolen your hope and gotten you to forget the basic promises of God that he is working? He's active. He's involved. Yes, there are times in which everything seems hopeless, but even in those moments in which it appears hopeless, God is still working. Here's the last reminder. There are times in which everything seems hopeless. When everything seems hopeless, God is still at work. The last reminder from Luke 1 is this. There is a hope that can shatter all hopelessness. There is a hope that can shatter all hopelessness. I say this to you a lot, and I feel like I need to say it again. It's so important for you to step back from just your reading of the text and, and I know this is hard, but to actually engage your mind. To not just check off the box, but to stop and think, okay, let's, let's think about this moment for a minute. Zechariah walks into the temple. He's just going to burn some incense. He's going to come out. And all of a sudden, he notices that there's an angel standing there. And it says this, Zechariah was troubled. I would say so. I, I, would, I would think it's a safe thing to say. <laughs> You walk in and an angel is meeting you. He was troubled. And it says this, and fear fell upon him. In other words, he was terrified. You're not expecting this. this. This just doesn't happen. He walks in. He's doing his thing. He's burning the incense. He's already shaking and trembling a little bit because this is an overwhelming, somber moment. And then an angel meets him. And then more than that, the angel calls him by name. Now, for me, I immediately think I'm in trouble. I think that's just something about my growing up. Whenever I hear my name across the room, I assume I did something wrong. This is just, I don't, maybe you don't feel that way. That's how I felt. So all of a sudden, an angel appears and goes, Josh, I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to do it. Andrea made me do it. Then the angel goes, Josh, everybody knows that's not true. So he hears his name. Zacharias, no, imagine that moment. But the angel does what seems to happen so often. The angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. By the way, it's obvious from that moment they had not just hoped for a child, they'd prayed. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And all of a sudden hope begins to emerge. You realize that, that all of a sudden God is about to break into their lives and do something absolutely incredible. But what you soon will realize is that God is not just giving them a son. God is not just taking away their hope. He's about to shatter their hopelessness with an incredible promise. You will call his name John, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And all of a sudden you realize the promise that was being made was not simply the promise of a son. It was the fulfillment of the promise made 400 years later in Malachi chapter 4. This was, this was the one. This was the one in the spirit of Elijah that was going to come and prepare the Lord for the Messiah that God had shattered their hopelessness by fulfilling his promise that one day he was going to send someone to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And he chose to do it 
to that barren Elizabeth who for 20, 30, 40 years had prayed, hoping against hope that God would ever give her a child. Now, now look at verse 18. I love this. There's some very good marriage advice here. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Notice how he responds to himself. I'm an old man, and my wife is an old, and my wife is advanced in years. Did you notice that? Here's what's great. She's not even there. Like, it doesn't even matter. Like, he could say, my wife's an old hat. I mean, you could say all kinds of, she's not even there, but he's not going to say, my wife's an old woman. Well, angel, hold on. I'm old, and my wife is, how do we say, advanced in years. That's good stuff right there. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I love this. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, I, I don't think we should be so hard on Zechariah. He has had a hard day. I mean, he had built himself up for this his entire life, and he's excited. This is his moment. He goes in. There's an angel. That's terrifying. And then uh, the angel comes and tells him that his advanced in years wife is going to have a child. I had a child at 41, which I don't think is too advanced in years, but I feel way too tired and old for a three-year-old boy. But I've got one. Zachariah is thinking, wait a minute, there's no, there's, this is not happening. There's no way this is happening. He's struggling with this a little bit. Even though they prayed and prayed and hoped, he's struggling. And so he says, wait a minute, how's this going to happen? I'm, I'm old and my wife has advanced in years. God said, uh, Gabriel said, I, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent on a mission to come and tell you this is exactly what's going to happen. But because you did not believe me, you will be silent until the moment in which she gives birth. This is just an incredible moment. I think you're reading this and you know a little bit about Elizabeth from the beginning. And she's a godly woman. She walks with Jesus. She's been bearing all the shame. And yet all of a sudden the kind of camera turns to Zechariah and he's getting all the attention. And you come really to the end of verse 20 and you forget that there's another person in the story here. And that's the old woman who's about to find out she's going to have a baby. Like you just kind of forget. There's an old lady here. Sorry, advanced in years lady who's about to find out she's going to have a baby. Now, I, I got I to gotta just, you got to imagine this with me. Look at verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah. It took a little longer than normal. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. Got a little holy charades going on here. Now, I'm sorry, I don't know why it is, but I can't help playing this out in my mind, okay? So, Zechariah comes out, and it's clear that he can't talk. Zechariah, what's going on? What took so long? Well, what happened? Where, where, where have you been? You saw, you saw a bird? A pterosaurus, No. No pterosaurs. You saw an angel. Yes, an angel. Yes, saw an angel. Well, what did the angel say? It's about Elizabeth? Okay, an angel said something about Elizabeth. 
So what did the angel say about Elizabeth? And that's the moment when Elizabeth's saying, hold, hold on, buddy. You tell me an angel came from heaven to tell me I was fat? No, we ain't doing that. If you wanted to tell me, just, just speak up like a man and tell me if you think I need to lose a little weight. Don't go blame this on some angel from God telling me I need to lose weight. Like, I'm not like, I'm embellishing, I'm sure, a little bit. I'm just telling you, he's making hand motions to describe an angel from heaven came down to tell his 60-something-year-old wife she's about to be pregnant. This is, this is a complicated moment. I do, the, the blessing of all of it is, is that she does get to spend nine months with a mute husband. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Elizabeth, it's like the one consolation in all this. She's 62, she's about to have a baby, but at least her husband can't talk. Well, I, I love verses 24 and 25. So after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying... Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I just feel like when you step back from all of this and you read verses 24 and 25, you get a picture of a heart at rest. You get a picture of what happens when hope comes in and shatters the hopelessness. There is something about her that is rejoicing and resting and remembering God. It is a picture, listen, it is a picture of what hope does to a heart. An anxious, worried, questioning, frustrated heart. When invaded by the hope of God is a heart at rest. That's the picture we get of Elizabeth. You say, what's the point of all of this? Well, the point is not that every barren woman has a child. That's not the point. We know that that's not true. The point is, is not that God fixes every single problem on this side of heaven. That's, that's not the point. The point is greater than that. The point is, is this is setting the stage for something bigger that is going to happen. There is a sense of hopelessness that has settled in on Elizabeth. God comes and shatters the hopelessness by the promise of a child, reminding us that in the entire world there was this air of hopelessness because it seemed that God was never going to keep his promise, and that hopelessness was shattered by the promise of another child. That in the same way her hopelessness was shattered by this promise, so it is our hopelessness is shattered by the promise that God has sent a child and his name is Jesus. And he has come to take away the prevailing hopelessness that invades our life by simply securing our eternal future forever. He has come to fight the greatest source of hopelessness in our life, the hopelessness prevails on us when there's guilt of sin, the hopelessness of soon imminent death, the hopelessness of an eternity without God in hell. All of that is shattered when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and believe that because of his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his promised return that there is sufficient hope for everyone and every circumstance and every situation in life. Listen, listen to this. Hope 
is the absolute confidence that the best is yet to come. So what's a good definition of hope? Well, this is mine. The absolute confidence, the, the surely of Psalm 23, surely that the best is yet to come. No matter the pain, no matter the suffering, no matter the disappointment, the best is yet to come. And how do you know that? Because Christ has guaranteed it. He has guaranteed it. That there is something greater than this life. Well, how do I know that for certain? Because Christ has died to bring you to himself, has a promise that you're secure and safe for all of eternity. And this life will be hard and there will be a battle for hope. But in the end, those who are faithful and those who hold on with confidence to Jesus Christ have a better and a more glorious future. It is not the promise that all of the pain is taken away here. It is the promise that goodness and mercy will follow you throughout all of eternity. And someday you will experience the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. You will rest with him forever. That promise comes from the hope of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this and, and I'll be done. One of the things that happens, some of you, this will resonate with some of you when you go through a time of suffering, is you, you start to get a little cynical with the cliches. You know what I'm talking about? I, I, I'm sure this is everywhere. In the church, it's just more abundant. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So you're just kind of pouring out your heart and you're getting honest, you're getting real, and then someone says, well, where God guides, God provides. It's like, yeah, I know that's true. I don't want to hear that right now. Like that's, you go to Lifeway and get a, crocheted pillow or a piece of reclaimed wood with a little something on it. One of the ones through times in our life of suffering was this simple statement. I think I've said this to you before, but I'm going to say it again because it's good and it fits right here. Well, someday you'll understand. I don't Maybe. I don't know where we get the promise that someday we're going to fully understand. Can you imagine if God took your circumstance, your pain, and showed you how it worked in your life and their life and their life and their life and thousands of other people's lives and generations ahead? You do not have the ability to comprehend what God is doing. Listen, our hope is not in the fact that someday we're going to understand. Our hope is in the fact that our lives are in the hands of a God who already understands. He's got it. He knows. And surely his goodness and loving kindness will follow you all the days of your life. Listen, are you living with that confidence that God's got it? He's with you. He knows that you're his. You belong to him. Goodness is following you. Loving kindness is following you. If not, I want to plead with you this morning to look to Jesus Christ. It could be that you have never looked to Jesus. You have never discovered the hope of Jesus Christ. I beg you, give your life to Jesus. It could be that you know Jesus, but yet somehow a hopelessness has come to settle in your heart and God wants you to look at him afresh, believe with confidence that God has got this. He is going to do what is right. God wants to restore some of your hope this morning. I pray that you would get humble and let him do that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.